Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Amagi, co-hosted by myself, Dylan Lawrence Moore, and Nima Majur, our resident economics junkie. We are here to tackle ideas, both ancient and modern, in an effort to bring you the tools needed to expand the power of your worldview, making you a more potent entity, professionally, politically, philosophically, or otherwise. We are graciously being hosted by the Think Liberty Network, which you can find at think-liberty.com. This is our very first episode, and you may be wondering what to expect from this show. Nima and I will be approaching the subject of freedom from a practical, one might even say dirty, standpoint, which acknowledges the the requirement of power. Without power, we can't do anything in our lives, good or bad. By understanding our relationship to the world we live in, and if we are guided by the proper principles, we can use our personal power to increase the freedom for ourselves and for the rest of the world. So here are some of the topics that you could expect to hear from us on this podcast. The first and foremost is economics from the standpoint of modern money theory, also known as MMT. MMT acknowledges the statist origins of monetary systems. So how does freedom of a society relate to the fact that money is likely a creation of the state? We will be exploring this idea in depth. The second big thing that we'll be discussing here is what I like to call intellectual self-defense, breaking down logic into a readily understandable form and using it to detect manipulators. And more importantly, what to do with these manipulative people once you've found them. You can also expect us to talk about things like news analysis, historical analysis, discussions on critical thinking, and even things maybe like investing in finances. And what we want you to be able to take away from this podcast is practical freedom. How do these topics apply to my life today and how can I use them? We also want to give you empowering viewpoints, perspective that perspectives that give you power, not sap it. The last thing we want for you is to be nihilistic or blackpilled after listening to one of our shows. So without further ado, this is episode one, the original sins of libertarian thought. All right, Nima, uh, how you doing with us today here? It's a pleasure to be on. Awesome. So as you know, what we're going to be covering today is typical libertarian, I don't know, what do you want to call them? Mistakes when yeah. it comes to economic thinking with this this view from modern mo- money theory. Um, what do you think is the, the first and fundamental mistake that libertarians make in the economics realm? The barter theory of money is what I found to be uh, at the core of a lot of uh, flawed thinking that I've come across in uh, the Austrian libertarian communities. In other words, the theory that money arose out of individuals who were freely bartering with one another. You know, some, you know, some textbooks, uh, 
imagine that there were people who traded goats for chickens and uh, then in a competitive process of people bartering different exchange goods, chickens for coffee beans, coffee beans for copper, copper for gold, silver, etc. The gold and silver emerged as the most popular media of exchange and uh, that uh, later on the uh, banks and the government uh, ruined it all by taking it over and defrauding the people of their legitimate money. What we uh, find when we uh, comb through history books and uh, read books like David Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years, is that there has, there's really no evidence for that uh, fable, <laughs> I almost want to call it, of barter. There's... Uh, also, Carolyn Humphrey, a uh, anthropologist who wrote a, a um, paper in the 80s where she also sort of demolished that, that barter myth by um, proving that there's actually there's no anthropological evidence of any kind that barter was ever an economic system amongst individuals, uh, even in, in primitive tribal economies. Well... It, and you know this comes kind of a shock. I mean, we've we've you and I have spoken about this before. It's it's a shock to me, and it's a shock to you because um, barter just seems intuitive, right? Like if we don't have some sort of exchange mechanism, we'll just barter stuff with each other, right? Right. It makes sense, and it, it made sense to me as well, and it makes sense to a lot of people because it's written in uh, school books and economics textbooks, etc. It's um, it's a uh, cool story, but it's unfortunately completely unproven. <laughs> so, and then in terms of, I mean, we don't, we'll never actually know where the, the theory came from, but th the guy who proliferated it, Adam Smith, um, can we address a little bit what sort of background and ideas that he had when he came up with this barter theory of money? Um, or wrote about it, I should say. So Adam Smith had uh, the idea that um, that uh, primitive economies uh, had to have uh, started with with barter. And so in his textbook, he actually writes about it. But he uses words such as imagine an economy where so-and-so happens. You know, imagine where somebody is short on something and somebody else has it. So they trade it with one another. And also he cited some examples of people bartering nails for other things, supposedly. But uh, what, you know, what Graeber outlines in his book is that there was actually uh, not really a barter transaction, but because people were still settling up in the uh, monetary unit of account at the time, you know. So wait, explore that a little bit. So even if I paid with nails, that wasn't a barter interaction? Well, because, because the involved parties would just look at the price of nails and the price of whatever else they're exchanging, let's say copper for nails or whatever, and then they would just uh, exchange corresponding amounts because they 
basically just replaced money with that item in the in in the transaction and in a business to business transaction that's easier where you have ongoing uh, supply and demand flows so there may have been transactions like that however on the books that have been uh, that have been uncovered you can see that people would still uh, calculate their um, th their profitability and their exchanges etc in the monetary unit of account that was the state money at the time so if we're not getting money from a from a barter system like, like an advanced barter system what does the anthropological and archaeological evidence seem to suggest that that money came from the state and credit theory of money have a lot of uh, uh, evidence to back them up in other words when a uh, tribal leader wants to turn his subsistence economy into a monetary economy, say, he would impose a tax on the population and then say, okay, every one of you now owes me a, a unit of, of the money. Let's just call it Nima bucks. <laughs> so let's say I'm a tribal leader. I want to create a tribal economy. So I tell everyone, okay, you, you now owe me uh, uh, 10 Nima bucks by the end of every week. But uh, the individuals in the economy have no NEMA bucks, so they ask me, well, how can we get the NEMA bucks that you demand? So then I start spending the NEMA bucks into existence by hiring them into the public sector. And at the same time, by the way, introducing a budget deficit as the government that I am because I'm spending money that I haven't taxed previously. So I'm spending money into existence to hire people to build bridges, etc. And then they have that money in their pockets in the private sector. Let's say I spend a hundred NEMA bucks per individual, then uh, every individual now has a hundred NEMA bucks in their pockets after my projects are done and they owe me 10 NEMA bucks at the end of the week. So they have, uh, uh, everyone has 90 NEMA bucks left. So that's an example where I've sort of have run a budget deficit of uh, 90 NEMA bucks per individual. But every individual in the private sector is up 90 NEMA bucks, if that makes sense. It does. And so now, I mean, that, that just sounded like a, a story as well that we could have said, you know, um, okay, barter theory is a story where you, where you imagine that the village is like this. And, okay, you've told this story of like, oh, well, let's imagine that I'm the tribal right. leader and I, and I issue this money. So if, but when we look at, like like we were saying, the archaeological evidence, it appears that both the archaeological evidence and modern evidence, you know, there's still primitive tribes in, in certain places in the world, actually function more like, the story you just exactly told. Right. even if we go back as far as the earliest records of Sumerian civilization, we see that uh, this was the type of monetary system by and large that was in place. And same goes for England with the tally sticks, where the king would hire someone into the public sector and uh, take a stick, break it in half give the uh, worker one half of the stick and keep the other half of the stick. And now the worker could use the stick in exchange and others would need the stick at one point because it was the medium through which, or one of the mediums through which the king would raise taxes or would, would um, 
allow you to settle your tax liabilities with a crown. And the reason why you break the stick in half is, of course, so you can match them back together because every time you break a wooden stick, you have a completely unique pattern. And so you can easily match the two together. So when you mentioned before, when we were talking about kind of our, our trading you know, using nails as money that uh, particularly with business to business, when there's an ongoing relationship going that they still settled in the unit of account, the unit of account, I believe you mentioned this is what's created by the state when they issue this tax where they say, okay, you owe me a NEMA bucks or you owe me in pounds or you owe me in dollars. The reason why we have all these different weird words for money is it's because whatever term the state came up with that said, okay, this is our unit of account. Correct. And what's interesting and which which really raises the question of what exactly a free market is, is the free market. You know, the businesses turn around and they keep track of each other using these units of account, even even if they don't actually have any. Right. Yes, that was the case, for example, after the Roman Empire collapsed for centuries onward, people would continue to calculate and account for debts in the Roman currency. And even, even though they didn't yeah, have any. Even though they didn't really necessarily have any coins uh, in their hands. And that sort of uh, shows you how the uh, material itself isn't really all that relevant. It's rather that money is just a social unit of account that is assigned the material the material that the money is printed on money is printed or stamped on correct so because you know this is another thing that adam smith says is that um the reason that silver and gold are have have naturally come to be that what's you what's not not just used as money what is money um is because of the, the ability to objectively measure how much there is. If I if I've got an ounce of silver, it's an ounce of silver no matter where I move it around or what I do with it. I mean, assuming I don't cut it in half or destroy it. Um, and that's why, uh, you know, gold and silver are the unit of account. You're saying that, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, m- maybe that helps the state keep track of how much um, money to print. But in the end of the day, what the real value of the money is the stamp on the money, right? Yeah. The gold and silver is a pretty good technology to facilitate this kind of record keeping, or or at least was at one point, you know? So in that sense, you could argue, yeah, gold and silver happened to be the material that were used to stamp the uh, debts recorded onto but they weren't in and of themselves the the money, if that makes sense. It, well, it's it's tricky, right? I, I mean, it makes sense to you and me now because we've gone over this before. But um, I, I think there's it's it's tricky to understand that the money isn't necessarily the thing that is printed on. For for example, this this is one of the things that I like to say is that. You know, let's pretend that we're all using gold and silver as money right now. And if all human beings were to vanish off of the face of the planet, would the money still exist tomorrow? No. Well, the gold and silver would still exist tomorrow because it's it's a physical object. But the, the money wouldn't exist because money is a thing that human beings use to keep track of what, 
you know, what they're doing with each other. So it's, I think when you think about it that way, money intuitively isn't a thing. It's a concept. And that there was a time, particularly, you know, but back in the ancient and classical worlds that stamping this concept on, you know, gold or silver, I mean, at the very least, uh, helped, uh, prevent counterfeiting. Exactly. Yeah. But this is bizarre. So we're, we're being hosted by the think Liberty network, right? And everybody's about being libertarian. And, you know, one of the fundamental points of libertarianism is that the free market is able to, you know, exchange things and, uh, money is really an aspect of helping, you know, allowing the, the, the market to freely exchange without the, the presence of violence or coercion, usually from the government. And what we're saying now is the actual unit of exchange is a state instrument and always has been. Correct. And uh, I just reread a passage in a Graver's debt where he talks about this idea that money came out of the uh, voluntary free market and then, you know, the government is something outside of that is, is very flawed. Came and took it. Exactly. Because yeah. the, the way it actually worked, if we want to uh, get down to actually reading history, the way it actually worked uh, w- was that, you know, a king would impose a tax in a currency and then he would pay his soldiers with that currency. And then his soldiers would, uh, you know, use that currency to purchase from people and a free market would be the the result of that entire exercise it's not that the market was there before but rather you know you know king would pay the soldiers in a currency and then with the help of that currency sorry just to be precise uh, just to elaborate the reason being is because it's 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 a it's a huge pain to provision an entire army right if you were in charge on your own to um move an entire army somewhere and then you probably per soldier you need probably three times as many people just to provision them to uh, clean their stuff to feed the horses etc so with this, uh, so if you don't want to just, if you don't want to have to be in charge of all of that, then you just impose a tax on the population and you pay your soldiers. The conquered population. The conquered population. Uh, you pay your soldiers in that currency and then the soldiers can go ahead and and obtain whatever goods they need from within the private sector that now emerges and the, the people in the private sector have a demand for the currency because they needed it to pay the tax, just as, you know, in the example that I just outlined earlier. So the big irony here is that, and it may infuriate a lot of libertarians, but the uh, a free market, the, the monetary system arises out of state coercion. And better yet, stateless societies, you know, tribes, very primitive societies, actually usually don't have any money. <laughs> So it's kind of the other way around. It's more communistic. Yeah. Where typically speaking, and David Graeber gives several examples of these in his book, where there will be a tribal leader or a group of oligarchs of some sort that essentially control all the resources. So when you work, it goes in, it goes into the tribal pot. And if you need something, you got to, you know, request it from the tribal leaders and they decide whether or not you get it. Yeah. Or they would have regular, uh, 
um, distributions of certain amounts of certain items, you know, staples, right. etc. So much, so so much grain, so so much barley, and um, the important point here being that the uh, monetary system arose out of state intervention, not out of people just uh, spontaneously deciding to trade chickens for cows. Yeah, that's mind blowing because you know one of the things, and I used to ascribe to this this idea as well, is that you know if we could just get the government to stop taxing us we would be free to spend our money as we wish. But if this is true, if the government stopped taxing us, the money wouldn't be worth exactly. Anything. Absolutely. So what we're saying, because you know, there, there's always, there's always this question of, you know, what's the U S dollar backed by seeing as it's not been backed by gold. Um, theoretically since 1971, but in practicality since 1933, we could talk about that later. But, um, you know, you know, what's what's the money backed by? Is it backed by oil? Is it backed by uh, this Ponzi scheme? You know, what's it backed by? What we're saying is money and it doesn't matter what country it is, is literally backed by the violence of the state. Yes. And that the reason you want it is because if you don't pay your taxes in this arbitrary token, it doesn't matter if it's made out of gold, silver, paper or um, computer digits. If you don't pay your taxes in this arbitrary token, um, you'll have your property stolen. You'll get thrown in jail. Or even if we go back a couple hundred years, you'll be sold into slavery. So I think that acts as a perfect segue. So we, we, we kind of explored the, the, the ancient origins of money. Let's try to, to, to bring the the concepts that we just discussed into the modern realm. So one of the things that um, we're always uh, hearing both sides of the political debate. And of course, by both sides, I mean this, this stupid Republican Democrat dichotomy, but there's always this argument about the federal debt, the federal deficit, and we can't actually afford anything because we haven't raised enough taxes. Nima, can you kind of, Give us a different framework to properly understand this conversation. Yeah, so in an economy where the government themselves create the money in which the debts are owed, the government can never run out of money to uh, repay those debts. That is just uh, a logical syllogism. In the economy that I outlined earlier where, you know, I'm a tribal leader, I spend money into existence, 90 NEMA bucks remain in every individual's pocket, um, the, uh, there, there's actually, uh, no interest bearing bonds yet. Now, if I want to offer the individuals who hold money in their pockets an interest bearing alternatives, uh, an interest bearing alternative to just holding the money itself, then I can, uh, offer them, Hey, you want a 10 year bond that pays you 5% interest per year? then you can give me, you know, however many NEMA bucks you, you want to invest. That you created out of nothing. Give them back to me and I'll give you a bond. And what you created create out, of bond out of nothing. I'll create the interest payment out of nothing every year. And whenever the principal is due, I will create that money out of nothing and take the bond back from you and give you the corresponding face value in NEMA bucks back. 
That's mm -hmm. essentially how and, it works. And I, I like how this is kind of, um, uh, I think it's a good idea. And we've, we've kind of started doing this is we're, we're kind of starting with this very sim simple situation where, okay, we're the, the government NEMA is printing a certain amount of money that these people are paying back in taxes. Well, we, we could start making this more and more complicated because at this point we don't have, you know, like a private banking system or a foreign sector or, um, a central bank or any of this sort of stuff. Um, but we'll see as, as we start adding these things on that, that the central premise that the, the government prints the money before it taxes it. See, it, it's backwards from the way that most of us think the, the government, cause there's nothing to tax until the government prints it. And because the government prints it out of nothing, it like Nima just said, it's, it's a logical syllogism. It the government can't need money that it creates at whim, yeah. whether that's by taxation, whether that's by, in quotes, borrowing. It's not really borrowing. We'll get into that. Uh, the the example that I that I like to give about this is imagine that I have a magical pouch that I can pull an infinite amount of money out of. And that and if I take money and put it in the pouch, that that money disappears. If I pull money out of my pouch, I say I pull out $100 and I lend it to Nima. Does Nima paying that back have anything to do with my ability to ever take money out of that pouch again? No, not at all. And it now it, it might affect the way that Nima might accept the money in the first place. I got to find a way to make that money valuable. But it doesn't make sense for the currency issuer to ever need money from anybody in order to issue more currency. And this is the same way. This is the same case today as it, it was back in ancient Sumerian times. Exactly. So what's then why do we freak out about the national debt then? Who, who owes the national debt? Well, no one really. I mean, the national debt is really just a portion of the uh, aggregate net savings that the private sector has accumulated, uh, invested into interest-bearing securities that were voluntarily offered by the government to people who already have money. So when the government offers interest-bearing bonds, what they're really doing is they're just giving a, a basic income to people with money. So because cash or reserves, depending on what we're calling it, is a government security, and bonds are a government security, both of which that they can create and destroy at will, um, one bears a little more interest than the other. It's essentially... this corollary to a checking in a savings account, right? A checking right. account uh, doesn't have that much interest, if any, but you could use it very quickly. A savings account does pay some interest, although if you want to use it, you know, th there are typically restrictions from banks on savings accounts of, you know, how often you can pull the money out or exactly. whatever. So th this gets even more interesting because doesn't it logically follow that if there wasn't 
a national debt, or I should say more specifically, if there wasn't a national deficit, if the government wasn't putting more money into the into the private sector than it was taking out. What money would they have? They would have no money at all. That's the problem. If I were to run a balanced budget in the example I gave, then that means that that I would tax all the money that I spent, all the 100 Nima bucks per person that I spent into existence. I would tax all of that money out of existence and everyone in the economy would be completely broke. They would still be owing the 10 Nima bucks per week, but they wouldn't have any, you know, so they would become highly dependent on me. They would at one point, if I were to run a surplus, even they would actually be in debt to me essentially. So a balanced budget or budget surplus, if you carry it through to its logical conclusion, basically just means private sector is uh, in debt to the public sector. So then why does the Federal Reserve, right? I'll just say the government for we're still in our simple example, manipulate interest rates? That's a good question. There have been periods in the U.S. where, for example, certain lobbies achieved uh, a, uh, an, uh, a modification to the fiat money system where the government would guarantee and fix the price of gold and silver. That's the so-called gold standard or metal standard where, you know, you still have a fiat money system, government creates the money, et cetera, but the government would promise to, to deliver a certain amount of gold in exchange for a certain amount of money. And in a system like that, if you want to discourage people from redeeming their dollars for gold, then you can offer them interest-bearing securities so they stay away from, from your uh, gold treasure. If you say, okay, I'll give you, I'll pay 15% interest per year for this 10-year bond, then people may opt to go for that rather than to, to, uh, to get the gold from me. So it's basically a me- mechanism so, of managing your, your gold stock. Yeah, so the, the, the government worried about their, their amount of gold because there's always more money in existence than there is gold on, on you know, locked in Fort Knox or whatever you're supposed to keep it. And you're, what you're saying is that if I offer you a, a bond at 5% or 10% over whatever number of years, you, instead of you cashing in your cash for gold, you might cash in your cash for a bond. Exactly, exactly. And in today's system, you know, that, that's the uh, second answer to your question. Why does the Fed fix an interest rate? There's really no reason for that. They think that they're preventing inflation, but they're really not. There's no evidence for that. In fact, there is evidence that higher interest rate rates cause more inflation because they inject more net money into the economy than they withdraw. So, Well, let's, let's slow that one down right there. I'm sure we just caused seven aneurysms by that one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying that adjusting the interest rates don't matter because what I learned from the Austrian and the libertarian perspective is that interest rates show how, how dire it is that the government needs your money. If the interest rates go high, what that means is the government is freaking out about its ability to pay for things. 
and they're going to offer you a whole bunch of money in the future if you just give us some money now. It's this Ponzi scheme that they kicked down the road. And that um, particularly uh, in terms of, of the money supply, if they push it down, what this does is, is due to the fractional reserve lending system, which we'll, we definitely want to talk about in a second here, uh, it makes it... it it makes it easier for people to, to acquire loans and get money. And that uh, artificially, because the Fed is pushing down the rate, that artificially expands the money supply. You're saying that all that's bunk. Yeah, that's bunk because the very basic assumption that the Fed is manipulating rates downward is already not correct. Because if we had a an economy like the one I outlined where I inject money, I inject, you know, 100 NEMA bucks and I tax out 10 NEMA bucks and then you have 90 NEMA, NEMA bucks in your pocket, um, then um, in an e- economy like that, there's there, there are no bonds yet. And the uh, amount of money that's in circulation uh, if I were to fast forward to our present day economy, that is called bank reserves. That is, you know, the, the bank's money. And the banks have a checking account at the Fed where they hold all their bank reserves. If I were to allow the banks to lend these reserves to one another freely and not intervene, not offer any bonds, etc., then the interest rate for reserve loans would naturally fall to zero or close to zero. Because the banks have no need for reserves, you know, v- very limited need for reserves. Only when, when there's uh, interbank check clearing tax p- or tax payments do they ever need uh, a reserves. So they always try to get rid of those and uh, exchange them for interest-bearing uh, options. So, you know, if one bank is short reserves and they'll borrow it from another bank, et cetera, but there would, if there's excess reserves which is a default state, then the natural rate in a free interbank lending market would be 0%. So there's no such thing as Fed manipulating rates downwards. And if you think about it intuitively, it kind of makes sense because in a sovereign money system where the government's in control of issuing the currency, where it's not pegged to any other currency, where they don't owe foreign, uh, foreigners money in, in foreign currency or anything like that. So in a sovereign monetary system, there's really uh, there, there's uh, no need for the, for the government to uh, borrow any money from anyone. And um, did you lose your train of thought? Lost my train of thought. So, yeah. um, why the Fed isn't manipulating rates downward? Oh, sorry, sorry. If it's intuitive where the government can issue the money and where the um, interest that they pay on the bonds is risk-free, there's really no reason why there should be such a thing as a risk-free interest rate. Even as a libertarian, if you look at it, it should make intuitive sense that there should be no interest rate for a risk-free investment. And if you're someone with a lot of money and you like to earn a risk-free income, then it's a nice thing for you to have. But it's not a free market thing. It's a it's a government created basic income for people who already have money. So for people who already have money, exa- exactly. So natural state is a 0% interest rate. And uh, now, you know, on the private l- lending market there, that's a different, the story is different. Of course, when banks loan money 
then they need to assess risk, et cetera, and there's default risk. So then they're going to add to the risk-free rate. They're going to add whatever uh, premium, whatever risk, risk premium makes sense. So we're, right now we're talking about the government's uh, influence on the, the market. And in that, uh, in that regard, the uh, risk-free rate should be 0%, not you know whatever it is right now. Right now it's 2%, 2.4%, whatever. And they keep on adjusting. They go, ooh, now the inflation is going up and we need to raise the rates. And they think that they're steering the economy by um, manipulating the rates upwards to different levels. But um, there's really uh, there's really no evidence for for that, and they're really mostly just meddling with a free market, which you know, libertarians even libertarians should agree is not a good thing. So you you mentioned something in there that that was a little cutting is that banks typically have no need for reserves. I think this is the perfect segue for the fractional reserve lending system. Will you tell me or tell everybody why banks don't typically don't need reserves? I thought they I thought they needed yeah. reserves because they're so recap on the fractional reserve lending system, just so everybody's on the same page here, is that a bank is able to lend out. Uh, it, it depends on what the reserve rate is. Let's say 10 times more in reserves than they actually have. And so the story kind of goes like this, where, you know, a bank opens up at stores. Uh, me and Nima come in and we deposit five hundred dollars each because we want to keep our money safe. And the bank turns around and goes, oh, we have a thousand dollars. So. Guess what? We have nine thousand dollars to lend, and and, and yeah. our deposits um, plus whatever the the uh, reserve ratio is is what determines the amount of money that the banks can lend out. That's the story. What's the reality? Right. <laughs> and and by the way, that story is an extension of the barter theory of money. You know, because the barter theory of money, we have you know at one point we have gold, and then on top of gold, they start doing banknote loans. And that's how the fractional reserve system supposedly came about. But if we go back to, you know, the sovereign money system where the state has the power to issue money and to, to sorry, first of all, to tax, obviously, and then to issue money into existence, it follows from that that the state also has the power to loan money into existence. So they could do whatever they want. They could spend it and and build bridges, et cetera, or they could loan it to someone who says, Hey, I have an idea. I can build a computer. I can build a machine that makes us more efficient, or I can build railroads that makes us more efficient. And then they would, uh, just l lend that money into existence on the premise that it improves worker productivity and charge whatever interest they want to charge for that. And, um, the the uh, the uh, the individuals who who borrowed the money would use it to uh, improve the the capital development of the economy. And in today's economy, it's not the you know it's not the state lending the money out; it's the banks. But the banks are really just if you want to make it simpler in your mind, the banks are really just the states lending. Right, they have licenses from loan out the state to lend money. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they loan out the state's money. They have access to the state's central bank. They can always obtain reserves from the central bank at their interest rate. And so the reserves are really just it, Is there an afterthought? A, a back end. Yeah, they're an afterthought. They're a back end managing, managing tool for the uh, central bank to regulate the banks, to keep it tap on the banks on the on the pri so-called private banks. So you're the, you're the one who, who taught this to me, which is that. 
um, the cause and effect are backwards from what most people think it is. It's not that banks have a certain amount of money that they acquire, for example, from from people depositing it for, into savings accounts. Um, banks have this magical ability to lend out money out of nothing in a very similar fashion that the government has. Uh, like we just explained, they get this license from the government when they lend that money out. Or I, I, I guess more properly a way to say it is they, they lend that money into existence out um, and there's a reserve ratio. What they do is they lend first and find reserves later. They don't exactly. get reserves and then lend them out. And so the significance of this is that the the fractional reserve idea suggests that the the amount of reserves plus the or I guess I should say multiplied by the uh, ratio limits the money supply. So if right. we increase the ratio, the, the, the money supply is going to increase because that's going to allow banks to lend out more. Or if we increase their deposits, they're going to be able to lend out more as well. When in reality, they can lend to whoever they want, whenever they want. And they just find the reserves later, either on the interbank lending market or through depositors. Or like you, you just mentioned, every single bank has an account at the Federal Reserve. They essentially have a line of credit. I forgot the technical term that they they use for this specific situation, but a bank can always acquire reserves from the federal reserve. If they need them. Yes. If for some reason they weren't able to get them on the interbank lending market. Right. And there's no such thing as banks ever wanting reserves, but not being able to obtain them because if that were the case, then the interbank lending rate would shoot up way above where the Fed wants it to be. And that never happens. The rate always stays in, inside the range that the Fed has declared at its most recent quarterly meeting. So the reserves are irrelevant. You know, as, as you know, the Central Bank of uh, Canada requires the Canadian banks to hold precisely zero reserves. And um, Which should lead to an infinite amount of money flying out of banks. Right. If we have right. if we assume the fractional reserve lending system. Right. So what is the limiting factor then? If, if the reserves aren't the limiting factor for the amount of money that banks are able to create in the in the market, what is the limiting factor is uh, willing and able borrowers. So meaning your economy uh, inside your society, your economy, the number of people who want to improve the capital development of the economy. Yeah, there's also, you know, there's also consumer loans and stuff like that. Home but loans really, and stuff like that. Yeah. And they're not really relevant. I mean, if all if that was all loans there are, then we'd really be in trouble, you know. But the main purpose of bank loans is to uh, improve worker productivity, improve the capital development of the economy, to direct spending towards purchasing machinery, computers, etc., to build businesses, expand businesses, so that we have better worker productivity. So the, 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 the limitation is really the availability of willing and able borrowers. So the borrower has to be willing to go in debt, first of all, you know, which is a question of individual balance sheets. And the, the, the borrower has to have a, a worthwhile project that, that's uh, worth investing in, that's pro profitable. And uh, those are basically, you know, what banks look for. The banks don't sit there and uh, look for, okay, how much reserves do we have? How much can we lend? They don't do that. They look, uh, they're constantly on the look for good credit risks for willing and able borrowers.
And, you know, going back to 2008, I know I know you mentioned that the consumer um, lending isn't the big thing. But as you know, in 2008, uh, the housing situation got a little bit bad because there were so many liar loans. So, you know, if we're, if we're going to talk about, you know, what's a, what's a, a willing and able borrower? Well, if nobody actually checks your credit and your income, everybody's an able borrower. Right. right? Th- this is what was happening before 2008 is people were able to write their income, make up whatever number they want. The bank wouldn't check it. And then they give out a mortgage. Right. They would. Ch- the, the checks were very limited. You know, the amount of liar loans in 2006, I think, were something like 60 to 80 percent of all mortgages originated, apparently, were liar loans. So there was a huge, yeah, there was a huge fraud crisis that occurred there, essentially. Well, and this isn't one I've actually talked to you about yet, but I remember learning about this that this is a very interesting concept, particularly when it comes to home loans. It's different from the business world is that banks, I mean, whether, whether it's a credit card or a homeowner or whatever, they look at your gross income to determine whether or not you can pay something back, which is to say that they look at the money that you're earning before you pay your taxes in order to determine whether or not you can pay something back. Now, how does that make any sense? So they're intentionally because you know the income we all know that we're all taking home is what we take home after we it gets taxed out of our pockets so to for the banks to look at our gross income instead of our net income they're kindly kind of creating a quasi liar loan situation by saying okay you've got access to more money than you really do now go ahead yeah, it's all basically, you can all summarize it under uh, lending standards. You yeah, know, lending good. standards. And, and so now, the, now the, uh, well, you know, I mean, we could have a long discussion of, you know, sh- should it be on, on gross or should it be on uh, net or whatever. Yeah, le- le- but we have to have reasonable lending standards. We have point. to have reasonable lending standards. And what of that actually boils down to, and nobody listening to this is going to want to hear this, regulation. Yeah. B- yeah. Because if... if th- uh, and I'm sure that the the gross um, uh, income, it's probably regulated that way. That's what the bank has to look at or else they can come across as denying you credit. The, yeah, the, the, the banks are in a privileged position. They are lending agents of the state. So if we say that we don't want any regulation of the state, then uh, all right, then let's not regulate the, uh, the military either. Let's, let's not have any regulations on congressional spending. Would, would libertarians like that? I don't think so. Yeah. So the, because the, the banks are, like you said, literally lending agents of the government, the, the only way that the government works is through regulation. So they have to regulate themselves. So as you said, just to get rid of all the regulation for the banks is kind of like saying, okay, let's just get rid of all regulations for the military. It doesn't make any sense. Correct. So I want to get back into to interest rates a little bit here. So um, I'm sure this is maybe on a lot of people's minds is quantitative easing. So, um, of course, uh, quantitative easing should be causing hyperinflation anytime tomorrow. And uh, 
why hasn't it yet? Well, what is quantitative easing and, and why isn't it destroying the economy in the same way that the, the libertarian uh, assessment explains it would? Yeah, a quantitative easing is basically a, a rather insignificant private sector position swap. So someone in the private sector holds a government bond, you know, one of those interest-bearing bonds, as, as we outlined in the model earlier, and now the government comes back and says, hey, I'll, I'll pay you a little more for that bond than previously. And, you know, whoever is willing to sell it is going to sell it because they can pocket a little premium. But they were, they, they had that money sitting there. You know, those were probably pension funds, et cetera, or savers. They had that money sitting there because they wanted to save it. So what are they going to do when you offer them a slightly better price for that item, you know, for that asset? They're going to keep it there, just going to find the next best bond to, to put it in. So there's really no reason why QE should cause any hyperinflation. Technically, if you will, QE is almost a return to the natural state that we outlined earlier, where there are no bonds and everything's just bank reserves and the interest rate is zero. Yeah, because essentially all that they're doing is swapping money from savings to checking account. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, because that, that, that's all that's going on. Yeah, because a government bond is essentially like having a, a savings account at the Fed. So let's change subject a little bit and get into Austrian business cycle theory. Can you give a, re a quick recap on your understanding of the Austrian business cycle theory yeah. and how MMT explains it? Yeah, so the... Uh, Austrian business cycle theory basically says that interest rates are a reflection of the market's time and savers and investors' time preference. You know, if, if someone is willing to put away uh, some of his money and that is reflected in interest rates and he doesn't need to consume it right in the moment, then that gives entrepreneurs the signal said, oh, okay, now we can. Uh, divert a portion of our resources into investment spending, into longer-term projects. And since the rate was manipulated down somehow, the, the, uh, the, the, this uh, signal is meddled with and entrepreneurs think that uh, people have time preferences that are different from how, what they actually are. So then they go on uh, buying machinery and building big factories for long-term projects. Then they find out that there's actually much more demand for consumer goods versus investment goods than they thought. And the uh, long-term projects fail and then the economy crashes and, uh, you know, everything's a disaster. And, and then this is the natural cycle of the government manipulating interest rates. Yeah, I mean, it's not natural because the government's manipulating, but it, it is the... Uh, it's the effect, I should say. It's the artificial manipulation of interest rates that leads to the misallocation of resources, and the economy won't bounce back or uh, grow significantly until the uh, resources are realigned appropriately. And the, the free market is supposed to automatically know where that appropriate alignment is right correct and if, if if the if the government would just back off it'll figure itself out but as you pointed out 
interest rates are only manipulated up. I mean, unless they go negative like Japan or something. Yeah. Um, they're, they're only manipulated from zero. Exactly. Which is usually. Up. So what, and then as, as we just said, when, when the interest rate goes down, that doesn't expand the currency supply. The, the, the regulation and the standards over, over um, underwriting, you know, uh, determining whether or not someone is going to get a loan or, as you said, if someone even walks into the bank and asks for a loan in the first place, that's what's really controlling the money supply from the private banking system. Correct. Correct. And also another problem with the Austrian business cycle theory, which uh, we're getting a little more esoteric now, but if the theory were correct, then... Uh, then when the crash occurs, then we should see a, a drop in investment spending and a uh, corresponding increase in consumer spending. But it never seems to work that way. It always seems to uh, to be a situation where all spending, consumer spending, investment spending, everyone's spending drops. Everyone just uh, runs away and uh, tries to save as much as they can, cling on to cash, and cash becomes king, etc., that's not really the scenario that you would see if the resources were being realigned in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So, along with the the Austrian business cycle, uh, th- there's also the implication that, uh, and, and this this is going back more to the government's spending money into in- existence rather than the uh, the bank spending money into existence. Because uh, actually, let's talk about that for a second. The, the the difference between the banks creating money and the government creating money. Yeah. When, um, yeah. Go ahead. When the government spends money into existence and only tax a portion out of that, that's what we call net private savings. That's the money that people have in their pockets. And that's claims that they have against the public sector in aggregate. But, but when a bank loans out money, then the individual who obtains the money also owes the money back. So the private sector's net position doesn't change from bank lending, but it does change from government deficit spending. And by the way, it also does change from uh, export surpluses or rather current account surpluses. But well, let's add that one later. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's a different that, that's, mm-hmm. Forget Nima said that for a second. What? We'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, what we're, we're talking just now between the private sector and the public sector. So l- let me see if I can recap what you just said properly. Is that with the private banking system, when it, when it, if I'm a bank and I, I issue, like, say, a loan for $100,000, then I'm going to get $200,000 back, which means $100,000 was principal and, and the other $100,000 was interest. That original principal, when it gets paid back, it disappears. It's gone. Because the the uh, there's a asset offsetting a liability, and then which one's the asset and which one's the liability depends on you know what side of if you're the borrower or the the lender. Um, but so what Nima is saying is that when the private banking system lends out money, the the net position of the private sector doesn't change because the asset is balanced out by the liability, and when it's paid back. The, the net private savings, when you add up savings, when you add up all assets and liabilities, is zero. It's, However, it's, when the it's government, zero whether it's paid ahead. back or not. It's zero in any situation. Yes, thank you. When the government does it, the government doesn't actually need that money back. I mean, it, ha- it has to tax some of it in order for us to, you know, scramble around to try to get it. But um, it doesn't need it in order to pay for anything. Technically, the bank doesn't need it in order to pay for anything either, but the government regulation is, you know, it turns into a liability against the bank if it doesn't get paid back. So 
But that doesn't happen with the government because the government is the currency issuer. When it when yeah, the, the this government money needs existence. the government needs the money in the sense that otherwise they're going to be uh, they're going to be in debt to to the Federal Reserve at one point, and then they'll be resolved, you know, and, and go bankrupt. So the banks do need the money back, and they will, you know, they will go after it <laughs> if they. If you have oh, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, no, actually, no. Is it the banks need the, the money back, or the government needs the money back. The, the banks need the money back. Yeah, right. Um, thank, yeah, thank you for, for pointing that out. So the government doesn't need it back because they issue the money and they don't need it. So what that means is the money that's left over after is printed and taxed back is the, the deficit for the for, you know, for that year. And that deficit, when you add up all the, the uh, assets and liabilities, it is the assets left over. Because all the private banking stuff adds up to zero. So that's why the government's money that's been issued is the private sector net savings. This is so bizarre because what it's saying is when when the public sector is in debt, that means the private sector has something to save. Yeah. So far, so good. So what that means is, furthermore... The claim that future generations are going to have to pay back today's spending is completely bunk. Yeah. If if anything, it's not future generations, but present generations that are paying uh, that are uh, affected by the interest payments. So that's the one thing where you know you and I we we agree that interest should be zero, but the government decides to subsidize people with money. So that is spending power that is allocated to people who have money and it's not allocated to others. So that is something to talk about, you know, that that's relevant and, and that's correct. But, but it always affects present generations, not future generations, what the interest uh, levels uh, are and, and what the debt levels are, I guess. But ultimately, really, all that matters is the interest payments that are, you know, that are made unpack that a little bit more i i, I think yeah, we've talked about this before so i understand what you're saying yeah. um i think what you what if i could say this a little more uh bluntly is that if we, we've got this system where rich people are holding these reserves because you know they got a bunch of cash and they might as well get a couple interest points sitting on this cash so they convert it into bonds when the government is paying out this risk-free money which is essentially for nothing um it is introducing money into the system which could have been introduced for services. Exactly. Exactly. But instead of being introduced for services, just these rich people get some more money. Exactly. So that's what you mean by present. The, the present generation essentially has to pay for today's spending. And when that spending comes in the form of paying people on their bonds. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, they don't pay well, for it. I mean, it's not like because technically, but you know, the problem is the government acts like they have to, cause they always tell us, or, you know, the congressional budget office tells us so and so much is now being paid out on interest. So then we have to cut back on all those programs. So they use that story to justify, uh, withholding money for other projects. And in that sense, you could say that the national debt affects present generations but it never really affects it's not like the future generations have to be taxed need to pay, pay back, back yeah yeah it's not like they have to be taxed in order to 
yeah, pay when, for the fact that someone got a welfare check this week. Yeah, when, when, a, when the government, not, not that we like welfare, <laughs> <laughs> when the government uh, repays a, a, a bond, all it does is it removes the bond from the bondholders' bank's securities account, and it marks up the uh, the bank's uh, sorry the holders' bank's um, reserves account, and it all happens via keystrokes. So there's no, 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 at no point does the government go to taxpayers and say, hey, we need this money so we can pay the debts in a sovereign money system grant, you know, because people say, oh, but what about Greece and so on? So yeah, that different story, different monetary system, which no sovereign. I don't think we'll have time to talk about today, but that's definitely worthy of its yeah. own. Episode. Yeah, I think it's just important to drop it because otherwise people are going to say, oh, what about all these uh, well, well, yeah, well, let's talk about a couple examples here. And I, I don't want to go into Greece, but let's because um, if, if we want to get hysterical, we could start talking about hyperinflation. That's going to happen at any second because of QE <laughs> or the government spending. And uh, if, if we want to come up with examples of why that that's the case, we could say, OK, why Mars, Zimbabwe and Venezuela? Yeah. So let's let's take a quick look at Weimar, Zimbabwe, and Venezuela, and see what went on there and why it's ra- they were radically different situations yeah. to modern first world nations today. Yeah. So Weimar Germany was on a, 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 some sort of gold standard, actually, which I always find funny because people say gold standard protects us from hyperinflation. Well, I guess that kind of failed uh, in this case. But um, Weimar Germany was a situation where the German government was completely crushed by the U.S., the U.K., France, all sorts of allied forces, and a completely ridiculous debt of, you know, 20 million gold marks or whatever was imposed on Germany, and it had to be settled in gold. So now the government had to, uh, you know, obtain that gold somewhere, so they had to uh, print the money and buy it on on foreign markets, etc., and also, you had a situation where, and obviously, you know, this way that it's you know it's impossible for them to import enough to feed their people, etc. And also, you had a situation where at one point the French troops would march into Germany's uh, western part and just start to literally extracting coal at, or making Germans extract gold and ship it out to France at gunpoint because Germany couldn't make the gold payments. Uh, to the uh, extent required. So you had a situation where you had a um, destroyed... Destruction of production. Uh, d- destruction of the factors, uh, of productive factors in the economy on a giant scale, you know, you had, uh, and commodities, you know, coal, it's obviously a factor of production. And uh, you had all of these uh, things being robbed from w- within Germany, and so you had a decline in the products available. And uh, if you ha- have a decline in products, then as per supply and demand, you, uh, you understand that the prices uh, will go up for those uh, scarcer and scarcer products. In fact, th- there has been research on Weimar Germany of the, time, uh, the timing how the inflation functions. People say, well, the government just printed money, then it caused hyperinflation. No, it was actually more like the prices went up. And because everything got so much more expensive, the government printed more money so they could buy more uh, or the same as before. So, you know, rather than the money printing being uh, the uh, originator of the hyperinflation, it was rather just a symptom of it. 
And the ultimate uh, cause of the hyperinflation is just the destruction of productive capacity in the economy. That, that's a fascinating thing to think about because um, one thing that, that we emphasize here, or at least in the MMT zone, is that printing money, or I don't even want to use the word printing, creating more money in an, in an economic system doesn't necessarily mean an increase in prices because as long as the creation of the money is actually creating more goods and services, the amount of money is going up while the goods and services go up. Yeah. And in the case of Weimar Republic, uh, the Weimar Republic, um, not only was the money being printed simply to pay back war reparations, um, uh, this is a point that uh, you didn't bring up, is in addition to everything that Nima just said, because Weimar had to repay its uh, repay, pay its reparations in gold. And obviously they didn't have a, you know, an alchemical turn lead into gold machine. um, They had to go on the open market and simply buy gold with marks that they created out of nothing. And so there was this massive sell pressure of uh, German marks on the foreign exchange markets while they were simultaneously in the most literal sense being plundered by France. And I mean, let's, let's not forget the fact that all the men were dead from world right. war one. Right. I mean, you, you, you had your population destroyed and then the France moves in and starts taking everything. So with the increase of the, the frantic increase of the money supply in the foreign market, coupled with the fact that the, the production was being destroyed. Um, plus what Nemo was saying that, okay, if, if our, if our production is getting destroyed, the prices are naturally going to go up, which means the government's going to have to pay more to pay for that stuff. That's going up, which none of these things are happening in the United States. Exactly. Exactly. So, so Okay. Tell us about Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe had a big land reform, kind of like uh, th- that um, disgusting thing that we're seeing going on in South Africa right now, where tons of land was taken away from farmers who had worked on it for, for decades, if not if not longer, and uh, it was redistributed, you know, arbitrarily redistributed to people who didn't know how to, you know, <laughs> work land properly. A lot of the land was just... Um, was just uh, it was weighted in left scraps, yeah, to grow fallow. And yeah. so once again, you have a vast destruction of productive capacity, and you have a hyperinflation. And then you have uh, they also owed some money to the uh, to foreign countries and foreign currency. So it was another problem. Yeah, I th- well, I think their their money was pegged to the U.S. dollar, yeah, wasn't it? Could be, yeah. Oh, yeah, and that was a big one we didn't emphasize with Weimar is owing money in a foreign currency. So, so Weimar owned it in gold, and, and you could say, well, gold's not a foreign currency. To the, gov- to the government issuing its own currency, it doesn't matter. It's something that, that it can't yeah. create, whether that's a physical substance or another government's currency. If Zimbabwe owed money in U.S. dollars, that's exactly analogous to the Weimar owing reparations in gold. And um, on top of that, I've, I, I've heard this from uh, Warren Mosler, is that uh, similar to how uh, Weimar was was had this huge sell pressure on the foreign market because they wanted to because they had to acquire this gold from somewhere. Zimbabwe was putting a pretty big pressure on the foreign market, too, because the whole government was corrupt. And so the government would uh, or the people in the government would, would, you know, in quotes, wink, wink, lend out these massive loans to their buddies who would immediately turn around and sell it on the foreign market because they, they knew that the Zimbabwe money wasn't going to be worth a damn. 
So we have an exact same prescription where, like you said, the, the production is destroyed while at the same time, massive amounts of money are being put up for sale on the foreign market and, and debts have to be paid back in a foreign currency. Yeah. And then we have Venezuela where once again, we have a collectivist economy the shelves are empty. There's, you know, people are uh, 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 slitting each other's throats for toilet paper and, you know, eating cats on the street and cats and dogs on the street or whatever. And so once again, productive capacity collapses, hyperinflation. And, you know, I, I think Venezuela is an interesting point because people ask me about it a lot, too. And, I, and my, my typical answer is, um, well, Venezuela is a socialist country. Per definition, it doesn't have a productive capacity. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 um, not, it, it may have. It, it's, it's a half uh, joke. It may have capacity, but, you know, the worse the uh, encroachment becomes, the, uh, the more they destroy their productive capacity. Yeah. Well, and, and then the, I think this warrants pointing out that so even though you have this relationship where the, where the money's a state concept and a state thing, state originated thing, um, it's, it's given value by the, the threat of force and violence that you have to pay it back in taxation. However, in order for the private sector to actually do something with that money, they have to have the freedom to be able to do it. Yeah. So if I can't start a business because there's 87 million licenses crushing me down, well, I, I guess, you know, the money that gets printed into existence just kind of bounces around and I don't get to, to make any more goods and services yeah. with it. In a socialist economy, um, it's literally the only thing that you're allowed to do is what we tell you. The, you know, I mean, this is the essence of central planning and it never works. And so they've destroyed, completely destroyed their ability of their citizenry to actually do something productive with the money while they keep printing it out. And, um, I saw your post today, Nima. This is so funny. Uh, news to everybody. Uh, Venezuelan hyperinflation has been solved because they're cutting five zeros oh, out of the problem market. solved. Problem fixed. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with capacity. We'll just knock some zeros <laughs> off. Done. So now with these three examples, this is nothing like what's going on in modern first world nations like um the united states or canada or australia we mentioned that the eurozone or, or greece specifically is um oh yeah J japan is also an excellent example of taking care of itself uh europe's kind of in a weird situation that would we'll like to talk about in a in a future episode but um we want to emphasize that not only do we not think hyperinflation is just around the corner? There's really no evidence to suggest that it's ever going to happen. Well, at I mean, all uh, it, it's if it happens, it would be a some sort of political disaster where you know, kind of like what we saw in Zimbabwe, South Africa, land is redistributed, etc. Or here, you see some sort of internal civil war. And, uh, you know, people bombing each other and factories destroyed, etc. Some sort of disaster of that kind could certainly uh, bring about uh, some sort of hyperinflation. But, you know, um, if those uh, those things aren't the case, then uh, it's it's highly unlikely. 
Okay, Nima, I want to go over one more thing before we have some closing commentary here, which is I I think kind of the, the nail in the coffin to all this. So all the stuff we've been talking about is, I mean, I know at the beginning we were speaking of, uh, of uh, you know, archaeological evidence and, and anthropological evidence and stuff. But a, a lot of this is kind of like, well, this is just modern money theory. This is just your guys theory, right? So why should I care about your theory? Well, it's because the evidence backs up the theory and, and the, the specific evidence that we want to bring up are the relationships between or the relationship between the U S government's history of balanced budgets and history of depression. Yes. Nima, would you so please since 1776, there have been exactly seven periods of substantial budget surpluses and significant reduction of debt. So we have uh, the period from 1817 to 1821, where the national debt fell by 29%. And uh, we had a depression in 1819. And we had a period from 1823 to 1836, where the entire national debt was eliminated by the libertarian hero, Andrew Jackson. And then we had a depression in 1837. And then from 1852 to 1857, we had uh, the debt falling by 59%. And we had a depression in 1857. And we had from 1867 to 1873, the debt fell by 27%. So once again, budget surpluses. And we had a depression in 1873. And then from 1880 to 1893, the uh, debt was cut by more than 50%. And we had a depression in 1893. And then, of course, we had the infamous period from 1920 to 1930, where uh, debt was cut by about a third, and we had a depression in uh, 1929. And then a more modern-day example, you know, the uh, Clinton-Goldilocks years, the, the budget surpluses of the 1990s culminated in the 2001 crash, and uh, by extension in the 2008-2009 so-called great recession. So budget surpluses in the U.S. have a horrible track record. I'm saying, you know, especially the U.S. is a good example because the U.S. generally doesn't have a significant current account surplus. So the country's net... You mean trade uh, surplus? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, oh, current no, account no. surplus, sorry. but trade surplus is uh, uh, similar. Ignore what I said. But... Um, so the uh, the country is being drained of net private savings just by virtue of that uh, current account deficit alone. And um, sorry, did I say we, have, we were running a current account surplus? <laughs> no, I said we don't have a. I don't sorry. remember. Just, just say the say yeah. the correct thing. No, no, now. We, we're, uh, we don't, we're not <laughs> running a current account surplus. We're running current account deficit, and as a result, money is being drained. So that amount needs to be made up by government deficit spending just to be at zero, and then we need some more government deficit spending so that there's net private savings accumulating in the U.S. private sector. So with you know with the government deficit being uh, um, cut and uh, balanced at times and sometimes even surpluses as we just went through here 
we are draining the private sector off of the net private savings that it needs to feel secure, comfortable, to meet its obligations in the future, tax obligations, debts, etc. And if we do that, then the private sector will limit its spending. And when the private sector limits its spending, that means companies' profits are reduced. And when companies' profits are reduced, then investment spending falls down. And if investment spending falls, then people in the investment sector get laid off and so on and so on and so on. That's just a cycle. Yeah. And downward spiral. Do we have a depression? Uh, and uh, that is not to say that every recession is the result of, uh, you know, a fall of net private savings. It's not an equivalency, but it's an implication. Every time we run, a, every time we run out of net private saving, we run into a depression. That is a fact. Uh, sometimes recessions are the result of, you know, just d demand shocks of wars, etc. People getting scared or supply shocks such as the oil uh, crisis in the 70s. But it is safe to say that if we run into a situation where we, we run uh, out of net private saving and we start running budget surpluses, that's the time when you want to watch out. Because that's the time when people start going in private debt, in, in bank, into bank debt, because the government isn't giving them enough to uh, 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 when compared to the, to the amount that they're taxing. So the government spending always needs to, to be commensurate to the uh, amount they're taxing out of the economy to where people can have enough money in their pockets, just as in the example earlier that I outlined where everyone keeps 90 NEMA bucks in their pockets if I only tax 10 of the 100 out of their pockets. And uh, I believe I heard you, it was you who described this to me, is that so we kind of have this this core amount of money, which is uh, – the private sector net savings, which is issued from the government. And then on top of that, we've got a actually much larger amount of money, which is uh, issued from the private banking system. But as we spoke about before, the private banking system net assets and liabilities per definition yeah. must equal zero. Whereas the, uh, the government, you know, they can issue it out as long as they're taxing enough to make the money valuable. They don't need the rest. So if if the government starts reducing the amount of money that it makes available to the private sector and the private sector, in order to, you know, get stuff done and do business, starts relying on, you know, uh, the in quotes private, as we said, it's they have public license to do this private lending. Um, they get more and more and more into debt to themselves. The private sector does. And at some point, this is the actual Ponzi scheme. It's not from the government. It's, it's in the private banking system that um, the, the private sector can't handle the debt load that actually has to get paid back. And the whole thing zhit, snaps to the beginning and uh, all the banks get scared to lend out any money. And we don't really see a recovery until the government starts introducing the private sector net savings again for the, for the everything to get kickstarted. Yeah, Do I have that right? Yeah, when the when the private sector runs out of net private saving is oftentimes when you see debt bubbles and and with that uh, asset bubbles, housing bubbles, whatever you know, kinds of bubbles that are fueled by excessive, risky, lending of of, of money by the banks. Mm -hmm. So one, I also want to say oh, about inflation because we're saying, oh well, you know. Uh, there's no hyperinflation. That doesn't mean that there's no inflation at all. Obviously, we see it every year. We have a certain level of baseline inflation, 
that is just built into the monetary system that we have. And there, there are, you know, there's lots of theories on that. Obviously, Austrians just say, well, it's just because of fractional reserve lending, and that's it, and it's bad. But it's really not easy to say what is the correct price level, right? You know, if we're libertarians, I think we agree that the government shouldn't intervene in the price formation. So, um, so um, we should let prices uh, adjust. And sometimes there's a reason for prices to go higher. Sometimes they go lower. But um, the uh, MMT literature that I've read, and also, by the way, historical literature by Carol Quigley, they write about uh, very uh, interesting reasons for inflation, which is basically any time you're uh, giving money to people who are employed in a sector that doesn't produce consumer goods. That is uh, a, a part of the reason for inflation. So, for example, when people uh, are employed, when a bank makes a loan to a businessman who wants to build a machine, so he hires people to work on the machine, and the people who work on the machine, they're not producing any consumer goods that are churned out on the consumer goods market. So all the money that they earn is just 100% purchasing power added into the market, and uh, it is used by those people to buy away some of the consumer goods from the people who work in the consumer goods sector. And then uh, on that same token, no pun intended, we also have the export sector where once again you have uh, money introduced by people who are not introducing consumer goods simultaneously, namely foreigners. Because it's export surplus, right? It means uh, Right, goods are going out, out. and money is coming in. Uh, Right, right. And then also um, you have investment. Uh, sorry, I had investment ex export surplus. And then, of course, government deficit spending, government investment spending also paid out to individuals who are working on government projects, bridges, etc. Not really necessarily churning out consumer goods, or at least it's very rare. So these are all uh, monies that are allocated to individuals who do not produce consumer goods, but they need to buy consumer goods to survive. So they bid up the prices in the consumer goods market a little bit. And that's really just the, pri the price we pay for having people work on machinery and, uh, and uh, exporting products and uh, having some people in the public sector, essentially. And then, you know, the favorite one that, of mine is the military. Yeah. I mean, military is very inflationary. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it's, it's creating a bunch of money and spending it into existence for literally nothing. The private sector is actually able to consume. Yeah. Plus you're actually bidding resource. You, you're like uh, military contractors. They, they hire highly specialized engineers, very expensive, very rare labor. So Minsky also wrote about this. For those reasons, military spending is actually very inflationary. Explore that idea a little bit. So you're saying that if the military is uh, taking these government contractors so an engineer, particularly an incredibly smart engineer, is being taken out of the private sector exactly. to make things that the private sector can't consume. Exactly. Whereas if they had stayed in the private sector, they could have made something that the private sector right, could consume. Right, right. So, yeah, and you, you're paying him a lot of money. Making engineers more expensive. Yeah, you're paying him a lot of money that he can spend. And you're also bidding up uh, wages uh, for these types of jobs. So that may uh, be tied to inflation as well. Uh, in, in the, um, 
in the end. So these are all uh, uh, potential causes of inflation. And then also what we didn't mention quite yet is, you know, we don't want it to sound like we're saying, oh, well, if the government can just create money, inject net private savings, then why don't you just go wild and spend tons and tons of money uh, and uh, run huge, on everything and yeah, run anything. huge deficits and we should have a super booming economy and a great economy. Well, um, there is a level of deficit spending beyond which we have full employment. And if we have full employment of resources, then we don't need the gov we don't need any more net private savings, uh, as is evidenced by the full employment. So in that case, we don't we don't need to expand uh, deficits, or, or we don't need to worry about a lack of net private savings, and we, we can be happy and let the economy grow privately and see where it goes. So, um, but until we reach that level, and right now, you know, almost all e modern economies have unemployment to some degree. And also, like, for example, in the United States, industrial capacity utilization is only at something like 70%. By the way, uh, I just saw this, just started, it, this statistic has started um, reversing uh, a guess in which month. November. Oh, the uh, the month the uh, the month of the yes. election. November 2016 is when U.S. industrial capacity utilization has started uh, moving up again for the first time since 2014. And I mean, you know, we'll see where it goes, but um, we're not anywhere near 100 percent. So as long as that's the case, we don't need to worry about deficits causing a lot of inflation, unless. The spending is on, you know, like we said, on military and highly specialized labor. Then that can cause some inflation, and you know that would be avoidable. And it's uh, it's unfortunate, but um, that's up to uh, the policymakers, up to the budget process to to uh, to change. All right, Nima. So. I'd like to give some concluding thoughts to this because, you know, at the beginning I said we always want people to be able to walk away from from our podcast with something a little more empowering and something that that gives them gives them a more powerful worldview. And uh, the first thing I want to bring up, which is so if we're going to take the libertarian or even the anarchist line of thought which is essentially there's two principles that guide us, which is the non-aggression principle and the self-defense principle. And the non-aggression principle, of course, being um, do not initiate force against somebody else. And the self-defense principle being, um, well, if somebody does do that, you have the right to defend yourself or somebody else who has been initiated aggression against. So if we're going to look at the fact that money is not a free market concept and it's a creation of the state, even in modern times. Um, how does that, how does and how should that change the, I'm just going to say it this way, the conservative av attitude toward the government and the monetary system? Well, I think there should never be a focus on, you know, on, on, on the money itself, on, on the budget, the, whether or not we're balancing the budget, whether we're running a deficit or whether we're not running in debt. At, at, sorry, at the moment, you know, where we have uh, insufficient uh, capacity utilization, et cetera. 
there's no need to worry about large budget deficits or um, the, the public debt in any way. The focus should be on, okay, what is it that we do want? What is it? What are the programs that we do want? That's a political decision. What do we want the government to do? What do we want to have them? Uh, 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 do we want to have government schools? Do we want to have government health care? Yes or no? Blah uh, blah, with military, etc. These are all political decisions. So the government, um, uh, uh, I think, most calls it the, the government propositions itself, or, or positions itself that way, or something like that. So this is what we what we want to do. The focus should be much more on that. And then, okay, so that's this amount of spending that we need to do that. And then we need to have a tax level that is lower than that and, and ideally, you know, significantly lower than that so that people can have net private savings so we can have a large private sector economy developing. So the thinking should... What, so, and so, sorry to interrupt, but the, the focus... No, I think we've today we've lost the focus because now today's libertarians and republicans, they just blame runaway spending on the monetary system and on the inherent uh, supposedly inflationary uh, Federal Reserve System, etc. But their focus should be on the budgeting process. Why is there no focus on the budgeting process? Here's everything should be examined. Do we need this? Do we need that? Do we want this? Do we want that? And, uh, and always knowing in the back of our minds, we can afford anything, the government can afford anything at once with, that is for sale in US dollars. Doesn't mean it should spend on, on everything questions do we want need those things and then the tax level of taxation should be commensurate and ideally it should be a very low amount of taxation um you know we discussed on previous uh, calls the uh, idea of you know getting rid of all income tax and just uh, uh, charging a very low federal property tax would be easy to track very low administrative costs very low implementation costs very easy to implement. If, you, if somebody doesn't pay the tax, you just sell the house. You don't even you need to track individuals. You don't even need to track people's incomes. I mean, uh, this huge amount of bureaucracy would fall away. And, and, and this can all exist within the framework that we exactly. already have. We don't have to reinvent yeah, the, everything yeah. in order for this to happen. And, we, we don't need a collapse. Well, and that's, we don't need a collapse. Yeah, we, that's what I want to bring up is the collapse, is that... Because, you know, the, the libertarian and Austrian and even, uh, you know, anarchist view is that the collapse is built into the system because it's it's all one large Ponzi scheme that's constantly kicking the can down the road by manipulating interest rates. Well, if that's not the case, if, if, the, if the crashes aren't caused by the misallocation of resources, if they're actually caused, mostly speaking, by balanced budgets... What that means is we don't have to accept the inevitability. I mean, I, I mean, outside, you know, civil war and stuff blowing up or, you know, whatever. Um, we don't have to accept the inevitability of the, the whole system yeah, very, crashing. Well said. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, well we, we don't have to, like, run into the woods with our gold and our uh, Bitcoin on uh, USB uh, <laughs> USB thumb drives and, you know, get, get a bunch of seeds, get our land and like, you know, catch the rain and have this self-sufficient thing. Th so that like when the, when the, uh, collapse finally happens, we'll be ready <laughs> yeah. to start. I'm going to eat system. my gold. That's what I'm going to do to survive. So w we can actually go back and participate in the situation that it's going on right now. And I know, you know, both Neiman and I get this a lot is, is, um, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's some details about how the government makes money. The government violates the non-aggression principle 
per definition. So I don't want any government. Tell me, how do we make private currencies? And, you know, me and Nima uh, uh, on other shows and other conversations, we've, we've spoken about what we think about private currencies. And we're not saying throw those out the window, which um, most MMTers will. So we will say we're different on that level. But we've got a system that works enough to not kill us despite popular libertarian opinion and it could be used in a much 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 better fashion so while we're trying to figure out say the private currency thing we don't have to accept the annihilistic um what's the word i want fatalistic armageddon fatalistic prophecy that it's all going to come to, to an end at any given second because well, the, the Armageddon's baked into the system. That, that's, yeah. that's not the case. We, we can actually have some future that, okay, these countries can actually function and get well, better. Also, I mean, uh, spending, uh, deficit spending, by the way, doesn't uh, violate the NAP. There, there's, no, uh, there's no violence in the process of deficit spending. The taxation does. But the spending itself doesn't. I mean, you know, somebody who's getting hired by the government, I don't see any uh, any uh, violence or aggression in that process. Well, and, and let's talk about hiring by the government real quick. And, of course, um, this topic is, I, I mean, it's multiple conversations in and of itself. But um, the fact that the government requires a tax, I'm, I'm surprised we haven't brought this up yet. The fact that the government requires a tax is the cause of unemployment. This was bizarre to me when I learned this, that unemployment is a government created problem. Because to be employed by definition means you're working for the unit of account. You're working to be paid in the unit of account yeah. of that country. Yeah, to be, to be unemployed means is, uh, you, so, you want money and you can't get it. And money, again, specifically yeah. being that which we need to pay taxes with. So if the government creates the problem, it is consistent with a libertarian view that it has to provide the solution in this in a very similar way um, that if the government can arrest you for for potentially breaking the law, it needs to uh, uh, give you a remedy to that, which is the court system to say, okay, here's yeah. your ability to defend yeah, yourself. You, you want to lay out the, uh, the classroom example that Warren Mosler gave? Sure. So um, Warren Mosler, by the way, we've, we've mentioned this guy a few times. He's, he's being given credit as like the founder of MMT. Um, I don't know if he's the founder, but he may, I, I think he's really the guy that kind of put everything in, in one space and say, Hey, look, here it is. Um, he explains the unemployment like this. So, um, and this was specifically in a classroom is he pulled out one of his business cards and he, cause he's talking to this classroom full of students. And he says, does anybody here want to work for my business card? And naturally nobody said yes. And cause who would, it's just a piece of paper, right? Well, then he said, well, what if somebody was standing outside the door with a nine millimeter and would not let you out unless you gave him one of these business cards? Now you're all unemployed. Exactly. Now, who 
now who's willing to work for one of these business cards because you need it in order to leave. This is the exact same situation of the government where the government demands a tax in some arbitrary unit. And for us in the United States, it's the dollar. And in order for you, in this case, not to leave the room, in order for you to not be harassed by the government, to have your property stolen or to be thrown in jail, you need to pay this pay this tax and this arbitrary token. And in order for you to, to get that token, you have to do some sort of work that pays you in that token. And if the government doesn't, you know, pay somebody in that token in the first place, non-government people can't work for each other with that token. So um, we'll, we'll kind of leave this as a, as a cliffhanger. It's called uh, the the MMT uh, proposition is to create something called the federal transition job, um, which, you know, creates much. What's the word I want? Controversy in the uh, political landscape. But uh, what we, we want to say on, on the most fundamentally logical level, the federal transition job is consistent with libertarian views because it's the solution. The government provided solution to the government exactly. created problem. So. Before we end, do you have any closing ideas for us to make us feel a little bit better about the, the economic situation that we're in Nima. Well, I think uh, there's no need for gloom and doom and, uh, and, um, you know, until, uh, there are actually signs of, uh, of, um, depression or recession such as, you know, um, balanced budgets or particularly a decline in private savings or a huge civil war. Um, people don't really need to listen to the disaster uh, scenario predictors. You know, I'm not saying that there isn't a tense political situation, so who knows what will happen there. But there's not nothing economically built into the system to where it needs to fail. And that makes me feel... A hell of a lot better and i think uh we'll leave it at that so thanks nima for the discussion as always and it's been a pleasure we will be looking forward to hearing from you in episode two Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.